this, uh, it may come as a surprise to a lot of you, but I was a super awkward kid throughout middle school and most of high school. Okay, a lot of you just thought <laughs> that's not surprising one bit. Okay, let me give you an example, though. Throughout eighth and ninth grade, I had the nickname Blue. Now, I'm a pretty introverted guy, but it wasn't because I looked sad all the time or anything. Rather, it's because without fail, for two straight years, I wore the same baby blue billabong zip-up hoodie every single day to school. Now, I distinctly remember, uh, I started going to a new school in eighth grade, that first day at lunch. You guys remember those days, like middle school, high school, going to lunch, and it's kind of like those scenes from like Mean Girls, right? Every stereotypical table on Mondays we wear pink. It's also kind of like that scene from uh, Forrest Gump when he's walking down the bus and everyone's like, can't sit here. And so it was first day of eighth grade, and I had my plastic bag lunch, not even a paper bag or a cool, like, Batman lunchbox, which, again, would have been weird to be in eighth grade and have a Batman lunch. Uh, but anyways, and, and I didn't have any friends, didn't really know where to sit, so I sat by myself, and I was eating my chicken salad sandwich, which for years my mom told me was tuna fish, and um, just vowed to myself, like, hey... This sucks, and so I don't want anyone ever to sit by themselves. The year went on, and I met friends, and I finally found my, my spot at the awkward table with all the other awkward kids, and uh, the next year came around. It was freshman year. Lunchtime came, and you know what I didn't do during that first lunch? Is I didn't look for the guy who it was his first day at school. I didn't look for the new girl in class who didn't really have any friends, mainly because I had found my table, I'd found the spot that I would sit, and what used to be a big longing and desire that as soon as I found my seat, I no longer remembered what it felt like to want to belong. You see, don't we make big statements, though, at times throughout life, who we sit with or allow at our table? I think there's a longing and a desire for each and every one of us to have a seat at a table with a group of people. Wouldn't you agree? So as we wrap up this series today, I want to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, it's the first book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels. They give us a, a biography of the life of Jesus. It's about three quarters of the way through your Bible. If you're taking notes, you can do so. Follow along with us. We encourage you to grab a note sheet. It's kind of where you grab a communion, or you can follow along with us on the app and the website, or, or download that on the website as well. We've been in this teaching series for the last six weeks called At the Table, talking about and looking at these various stories in which Jesus was at a table and some life changed happened. In the ancient Middle East, there was this thing called table fellowship that who you ate with and who you associated with was a really, really big deal. It wasn't that you just enjoyed some bread together, but it went beyond to say you almost accepted them into your life. And week one, we kind of started off with this idea of what would it look like if we had bigger tables and smaller fences? And for us, hopefully you've kind of seen through this series that a table isn't just a literal one in your home, but it's also somewhat of a metaphorical table, your own heart and your own spirit as well. And so if you would let me, this morning, I would like to kind of show us all how Jesus had this super unique ability to kind of call people to a different way of life while at the same exact moment set a table where anyone felt like they could belong. Look at this story in Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9 this morning. 
It says, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. So here is Matthew recounting the actual call of discipleship in his life. If you read the Gospels of Mark or the Gospels of Luke, what you'll notice is a different name is used. The name is Levi is used. It's the same dude, same situation happening here. At this point, Jesus has given his best, his biggest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, and he's begun his healing ministry. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. But what we begin to notice about this healing ministry, it's not just about healing physical ailments but there's this spiritual healing that's happening as well. And so Jesus went from there, he's net down by the Sea of Galilee, and he came by Matthew's tax collector booth. Now, a tax collector back then, to kind of set the stage, is not someone that most people wanted to associate with. You see, what a tax collector was is they were uh, hired by the Roman government. And so the nation of Israel was under Roman empire, Roman power. And so the Romans wanted to get a tax from anyone and everything. Not like we know anything about that today. And so, so they came up with this idea, though, instead of trying to learn the language and learn the customs, instead, let's just hire some native people, and they can do it for us. And so the way it would happen is if you signed up to be a tax collector, the Roman government would say, okay, cool, here is what you owe us every given month, but anything that comes in above and beyond is yours to keep. And so a tax collector was signing up to essentially extort their own people on behalf of the Roman government. And so they would come and they would take everything and they didn't know, they would just have to pay the taxes, pay the tariffs. And so here is Matthew, his booth is by the Sea of Galilee. The number one export out of the sea is fish and fishermen. And here is Jesus with his other disciples, majority of them being fishermen. And Jesus walks up to this man for weeks, months, presumably years, has lied to and taken advantage of his own people. And he says, follow me. Now the Gospel of Luke adds a little extra there. The Gospel of Luke says, and so he left everything behind to follow Jesus. In the year 2006, there was a rising and upcoming boxer by the name of Floyd Mayweather. He began to notice after a few of his fights that the cut he was getting at was far less than the revenue being generated. And this kind of bothered him. He was the one doing the work. He was putting his body on the line. And so he made a pretty big decision to cut ties with a traditional boxing manager. And what it took is every single penny that he had in the bank account. At that point, he had amassed $750,000, which is quite a lot of money to break ties, but he created his own own management brand. Now, most in the industry said this is the riskiest gamble of all time because of the spectacle that it created, because it was breaking away from the norms of everything the way it's always been done. They said if Floyd lost his next match, no other boxer or agent probably would have picked him up. Floyd goes on to win his next match and the next and the next, all the way to amassing a perfect 50-0 boxing record and finding himself with a cool $750 million in the bank account. Now, I'm not saying that that Matthew's net worth was the same as $750 million, but he left everything behind. He risked it all to follow Jesus. 
Because think about this for a moment. He left behind this lucrative life. He probably had a big house and he had the extra donkeys to ride around on and he had the super nice saddles and all of that from his way of life. But leaving behind that job, someone would have willingly been behind them to say, I'll do that. I want that, that life of lash and luxury. And if the Jesus thing didn't work out, well, certainly Rome wasn't going to hire him back. But at the same time, too, who in their right mind would hire a traitor? And so Matthew literally leaves it all behind for two simple words. When the Savior of the world approaches him and says, follow me. Now, the key here isn't necessarily what Matthew gave up. Rather, it's the authority of Jesus. That Jesus has the authority and the power the willingness to be followed. And all throughout Jesus' life, we notice who he seeks out to follow him. It's never the best of the best, is it? It's never those who have all the luxuries in life, per se, and leaves them with that. Rather, it's somewhat of the worst of the worst, the people who have made some pretty poor decisions in life. But it's who the invite is coming from that means the most, is it not? It was worth Matthew's whole life. And so the same goes for us. There's an open invitation for everyone to follow Jesus. There's an open invitation for each and every one of us to follow Jesus. No matter if we've felt like we've lived a good life, there's the opportunity and the invitation to follow Jesus. Or if we felt like we've essentially been a traitor our whole life and made a lot of poor and marginalized decisions with it, there is always an open invitation to follow Jesus. Now, if you're like me, sometimes perhaps your, your pride or your sin or your selfishness gets in the way and you begin to say, yeah, yeah, I know that, I agree with that. But in the deepest parts of your heart or your mind, you think, but does that really apply to everyone? Does anyone really have the invitation to follow Jesus or is it just kind of those? But we see it's true. The invitation is open to everyone, but Jesus has one simple call, one simple request that before you make this commitment, before you make this lifelong decision, you need to do one thing. You need to count the cost, consider the ways, deny yourself, and follow after me. You see, Matthew exemplified something that I think sometimes we miss. Sometimes we miss that to follow Jesus means we have to leave behind our old table. We have to leave behind our old way of life to join Jesus at his, right? It's like you can't double date someone at the same time in the same restaurant and hop back and forth. How are you doing, Google? And then, you know, like, and, and just kind of trying to manage that. Instead, you have to be willing to let go that this is the table where I used to dine. This is the table of where I used to make decisions. This is the table, and I need to leave the table of my ways to sit at the table of his ways that we can't choose to follow Jesus while also sitting at the table of our old way of life. Continues in verse 10. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, these super religious guys who are kind of annoying, they're kind of a pain, but you know, it's cool. They saw this and they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. 
So here's this call. Jesus comes up to Matthew and says, hey, dude, I want you to leave it all behind. Leave the money, leave the luxury, leave, leave everything that you could possibly get your fingertips on and, and, and abandon it all and follow me. And so he goes home and what does he do? He throws a blowout party. Right? This isn't like a, someone who seems sad or reluctant or kind of like, okay, I'm burdened. I know this is the right choice. I guess I'll do it. He says, this is amazing. And so he throws this big old party. He throws this feast, invites all of his friends. And then, of course, these Pharisee cats kind of, sleep, uh, kind of sneak their way in. And they begin to kind of this idea of table fellowship again. Why is Jesus, why is this Lord, Messiah, Son of God, is he aware of who he is associating with at this moment? Because just like in middle school or high school today or kind of even in life for us as adults, a table, so to speak, has the ability to form our identity. The thing is, is Jesus ate with anyone it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter where you come from. It didn't matter what your past looked like. Accepting his invitation would change who you were. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he ate with the Pharisees, the religious elite. He would eat with sinners and tax collectors alike, women of promiscuity, lepers, outcasts, fishermen, rich rulers, anyone, especially those we would have least suspect because they are kind of the most suspect in their way of life. But that's exactly who we saw Jesus eating with. Now, I don't know if the disciples were thinking to themselves, Jesus, are we sure we're supposed to be here? Is, is this really the kind of people we need to be dining with? We don't, I don't know, maybe the disciples were or weren't thinking that, but we know the Pharisees were. And Jesus just kind of looks at him and is like, bruh, this is why I came. This is exactly why I came. Y'all are suspect. I can't get away from non-suspect people in life. This is why I came. But anyone who answered the invitation to dine with Jesus left a different person. Matthew the tax collector, after that dinner, now leaves behind that, and he becomes Matthew the disciple. Sam and Sally the sinner leave that dinner, and they are now Samuel and Susan the saint in the family of God. What we see from the Pharisees is this, is that who you think deserves to be at Jesus' table says more about you than it does them. Who we think deserves to dine with Jesus, belong to his family, have a part in his kingdom, says more about you than it does them. You ever, um, I just started noticing, you ever notice how sometimes we get like a little uh, self-conscious about some of the places we eat? Like I say, you went out to lunch and you came back and you had a quick lunch and um, you went to the Golden Arches and your coworkers like, hey, did you have a good lunch? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, where did you go? And you're like, <clears throat> McDonald's. <laughs> you ever notice? Like, we kind of get like ashamed, just like to admit that, like, yeah, I eat at McDonald's. Or if someone's like, hey, hey, what do you want to get for dinner tonight? You know, and someone's like willingly, I mean, I love Taco Bell. I'm a huge Taco Bell guy. Baja Blast is like God's nectar that he's given to us. But you ever notice how we get a little cautious about that? We're not sure if people, what they're going to think about us knowing this. And now, Jesus isn't just saying, like, hey, I go to the same restaurant as these people. He's not just saying from time to time you'd see me saying, hey, how's it going? Rather, it's kind of like, who would you share that back private room with? 
That's what Jesus is essentially doing. Not just does he kind of cross-pollinate. Instead, it's who does he make an, an intentional invitation to come and sit and be with him. And it's anyone. What we notice about Jesus, though, is he never joins in the sinning with the sinners, but he always made a seat for them to join in. He's never seen going and following what they did in their way of life, but he's always inviting them to experience his love and his grace and his mercy. And to me, this ought to be the beauty of the church, shouldn't it? That you and I alike that not only have we found a seat at the table of Jesus, but instead we also get to invite others as well. That we were all lost and we are now found. We were sick, we're now healthy, we're broken, we're made new, we're sinners declared righteous, all because of the work of Christ. And so for me, sometimes I think we need to pause and really, really, really consider how much of our understanding of church or following Jesus is cultural versus it being biblical. Like how much of it, of the cost and the way of life of being a disciple is actually what we see in scripture and how Jesus calls us and commands us to do versus what culture kind of leads us to believe. Let me give you an example. Would Jesus have eaten with anyone in this day and age? Think of the person that if you walked into, I don't know, pick a restaurant, uh, Hamilton Walkers, and you saw Jesus sitting at a table with that person, would you be shocked? Would you be surprised at who Jesus is sitting with? Like, like you ever been there before thinking like, yeah, yeah, I get Jesus' love and his grace and his life, his death, his resurrection, that faith is open to anyone and everyone who repents of their sin and desires to follow him, that that invitation is open, except for that person. The one I disagree with, the one who disagrees with me and makes it known regularly, even the person who has hurt you in the past, the person you have hurt in the past, the one who's made some life choices that you probably wouldn't agree with, the one who's unwilling to notice your hard work, the person who has that holier than thou, would Jesus have eaten with that person? And the answer is yes. Absolutely he would have. But would we? Would we dine with that person in our heart because we have been invited to the table of Jesus as well? Here's how we know this to be true. Look at what Jesus says next in verses 12 and 13. He says, on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call, not call the righteous, but the sinners. My question here is always, why didn't Jesus turn to the Pharisees and say to them something like, well, you guys ought to know better. You go throw a party. You go turn around. You go invite people into your home. Live out this love that so-called you know and have internalized, you've memorized scripture and all that type of stuff. But the reason I don't think Jesus does is because he knows their hearts weren't ready. Their hearts weren't healthy yet. Because if Jesus has your heart, if he's captured everything about you, others will always have a seat at your table because Jesus changed who could belong. 
Here's the truth that I think Jesus leads us to here is that there is always an open seat for anyone at Jesus' table. Always an open seat for anyone at Jesus' table. Jesus then looks at the Pharisees and he gives them a verse they would have known from the prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter six. It's an Old Testament prophet. It's about halfway through scripture. It's a phenomenal book. It's this story. It's a, it's a story of real life. But it's also a metaphor of how God has pursued us at all costs. And he gives this verse, chapter six, verse six. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now, this word mercy, chesed, it's a covenant love that Jesus is talking about. And we read and we hear this verse saying, we'll we'll do X instead of Y. But really, it's better to read, I want X more so than Y. And what Jesus is getting at, he's saying covenant love, grace shown to one another, ritual, churchy works and religious things. He's saying both are good, but I want one significantly more than the other. And certainly don't let one cloud your ability to extend that to the other. So Jesus in one instance looks at Matthew and he says, leave it all behind and follow me. In the next instance, he looks at the Pharisees and he says, go and learn. Get back into the word and apply it to your life. And here's where we really begin to see what it means to dine at the table of Jesus, the call of discipleship. It's that it requires an inpouring of God's word into us that leads to an outpouring of God's love. That we get into scripture, we go to God in prayer, it becomes a part of who we are in our heart, our mind, our soul, our daily rhythm, so that it leads to an outpouring of God's love. I love how the Apostle Paul writes to the young Timothy. He's writing to this young guy probably in his mid-20s. He's given this church in Ephesus about 30, 40 years after the time of Jesus, 5,000 people, and he says this to encourage him. He's kind of at a loss. Paul, I don't know what to do. You started this church, and he gives him these words in chapter 1. He says, the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart in a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. You catch that? Timothy, preach the gospel, but help people understand that if it doesn't lead to an outpouring of love, that understanding has not yet taken root. I've got two young kids at home. Uh, I've got my son Jude, he's five. Our daughter Avery is about two and a half. Um, Jude, the best kind of way to describe my son is uh, if you're an Enneagram person, uh, he's an Enneagram one. You know, he's just very like OCD. Everything's got to be in a box. He loves Legos right now. So much so that when he gets his Legos, the first thing he does is read the directions which is like really weird for a fifth or a five-year-old, okay? In fact, he actually like sleeps with his directions. He would like take them to bed with him as like somehow like, do, like osmosis, I'll wake up and I'll know how to build this even better. He has us like retape his boxes back together like every day so he can reopen them again. It's like the weirdest thing. He's a strange kid. He gets it from his mom. Um, And then we have our daughter, Avery. She's two and a half, and she is a wild child. Like so much so, a couple earlier this past week, when I was leaving the house to go to work, she literally has her older brother in a headlock. I'm like, all right, kids, I'll see you later. And she's like, bye, daddy, love you, like holding him in a headlock. And so they, you know, they're in this age where like they play well together, and um, one of the things they like to do is play with Play-Doh. 
And uh, Play-Doh is like the spawn of Satan because it dries out and then it gets in every crack. But, you know, we give it to them anyways because we're ludicrous parents. And uh, they, they play with Play-Doh. And so our son Jude, like he gets like the stencils and he makes like one shape at a time and he keeps his colors. And, he's, and then you just see Avery just get this idea. I've got pink Play-Doh. I've got green Play-Doh. Let us mix them together. <laughs> and, she's, and then as soon as she does that, our son Jude's just like, no, 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 Avery, you can't do that. You don't mix the colors. We don't, that's not something that we do. And then she's like, oh, yeah. And then she like grabs the brown and smushes that together. And then our son's having a mental breakdown. Our daughter's loving it because she's just getting under her skin. But the thing is, once that Play-Doh gets mixed together, you know what you no longer have? is pink Play-Doh and green Play-Doh. You just have like a marbly swirl of pink and green Play-Doh wherever you go. In a lot of ways, that is the call of being a disciple of following Jesus. There is a call to commit to God, to understand the word, to love God as well as love others. They go together, they cannot be separated. That when we leave behind the table of our life to sit at the table of Jesus, the call is simple. Love God, love others, and serve both. See, we can't claim to love God and sit at Jesus' table if we continue to treat others poorly. We can't claim to love God and think that those people don't have a seat. We can't claim to love God and think that we can continue to go back to our old table. Leave it behind. Pick up your cross follow me. That's why Jesus says, I've came to call the sinners and make them righteous. I came to the sick to make them healthy. So what does it look like to sit at Jesus's table? It's twofold, and we'll close here this morning. Number one is that Jesus calls us away from the tables of sin. It's the truest and most fundamental part of being a follower of Jesus is we leave behind our old way of life. The tables of sin prior to following Jesus is the table of which you associate with. It is where you find your identity, whether you realize it or not. It is a table in which if you sit there for eternity, you will sit there separated from God for all of eternity. Where you dine, where you spend your time, where you associate, the way you make decisions, your past, your brokenness, whatever it may be, we are called to leave behind the table of sin so that we can find Jesus at his table, his table of love, his table of grace, mercy, redemption, and all it takes is saying, I want to leave this table of sin behind and join Jesus at his eternal table. And there might be some of you here this morning that that is a decision you've yet to make. You've yet to decide to leave behind the table of sin to join Jesus at his table of love. If the Spirit is prompting you this morning, I encourage you to give that life over to him. You can connect with us. You can fill out a connect card. You can call the church office. You can find me after service, but we'd love to talk with you about what it means and what it looks like to pick up your cross and follow Jesus. But once we've come to the table of Jesus, this is the second thing, is that while you can't save anyone, you can set the table. As human beings, we have no strength within us to save another person. 
We cannot save anyone based on our own strength. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot save our family. We cannot save our friends from the bondage of sin and death. But what we can do is set the table and invite them to come and sit with Jesus Christ, to come and find that good news, that grace towards us becomes grace towards them, that once we have been invited to Jesus' table, we are then called to set the table for others. And so let me close here. As we move to our time of response this morning, as we continue to worship, I want to plant this seed in your mind that this table represents two different things. In one way, this table could represent a metaphorical one of your own heart. Who in your life and who in your heart do you need to set the table for? Who in your heart, who in your life has yet to leave behind the table of their sin and join Jesus's? What can you do to pray for them, to pursue them, to invite them, to experience Jesus's table? It could also mean a very, very tangible table as well. There might be someone in this room, there might be someone in this church, there might be someone at your workplace, a neighbor, who you know is going through a very difficult time. Perhaps they're lonely, perhaps they're separated, perhaps they're widowed, I don't know. What would it look like to be a church where we invited others to our table, not just figuratively, but literally? What would it look like to have, have a congregation on a regular basis, once a month, you made an effort to invite somebody to your table to just share a meal? Not even to evangelize them, not necessarily even to share your faith, but just to show that you care and love about them. To share that same grace that's been given to you to give into them. Who in your life, I'll end with this, needs to be invited to the table? If you would, if you have your communion elements, I invite you to get those out with me as we worship this morning and remember Jesus' table that he's invited us to through his life, his death, and his resurrection. On the last night with his disciples, Jesus took the bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. Then he held up the cup. This is my blood shed for you. Take and drink. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me as we continue to worship this morning? Heavenly Father, we, we're so thankful for who you are. We're thankful for the life you have called us to. Man, sometimes it's difficult to leave behind that old way of life to follow you, but you have given us the promise and the truth that you will be with us and that it is better. We thank you for the table that we gather around this morning, and it is not a table that necessarily we have found, but that your son Jesus has created and set for us and invited us towards. Lord, make us those Christians, make us those disciples to know that we ourselves are always welcome, and so is anyone else. May you pour your word into our hearts so that we may pour your love into the lives of others.
your name that we pray. Amen.